Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Focus on Albany. I'm Cynthia Pooler. Uh, today my guest is Dave Lombardo of the Capitol Press Room. And we're here to talk about all the New York State races and how they're shaping up. Now let's start with the governor's race, Dave. It seems to be getting pretty crowded. Do you think that Kathy Hochul is still the candidate to beat? Yeah, I think if I had to be one of the declared candidates at this point, I think I would still like to be incumbent governor Kathy Hochul. Uh, Since we last spoke, we had the entry into the race of Congressman Tom Suozzi. He's a, a Long Island Democrat who mm-hmm. is no stranger to the gubernatorial politics of New York, having run and lost the Democratic primary for governor in 2006 to Elliot Spitzer, who went on to uh, get elected governor pretty easily against uh, John Faso. Uh, Swazi is trying to occupy this sort of moderate to conservative lane in the in the Democratic primary, making a bet that uh, the other candidates in the race, Hochul, uh, A.G. Tish James, and New York City Public Advocate Jumani Williams, if he remains in the race, will eat up uh, the other vote, and that he sees a, a path to victory for him. He's kind of, you know, for lack of better words, advertising himself as, you know, Cuomo light in terms of his outlook for New York, uh, if not necessarily his. Uh, leadership style, although he has had a lot of positive things to say about Cuomo's leadership during the pandemic. So that's kind of the big changes in the race. And, you know, uh, that being said, I'd still rather be Hochul, who sits on a comparatively large campaign war chest and has the next five to six months to really use the office to her benefit. I... You know, the candidates that you mentioned who are already in the race, I don't particularly think of Kathy Hochul as a flaming liberal or progressive. I think she's more a, uh, you know, a moderate or uh, more on the conservative side. Am I wrong? I think that Kathy Hochul is kind of a sphinx in that way, in that she can seem like a lot of different things to a lot of different people. If you get hung up on the policies and decisions that she made as a local elected official, you might think, wow, this is somebody who by their nature is pretty conservative. But at the same time, if you follow her career through Congress and then as lieutenant governor and now governor, there are plenty of liberal priorities that she has advanced or even championed. I think that coming into office, one of the first bills that she signed of a significant nature was uh, something called the, the Less is More legislation, which has to do uh, with a very progressive criminal justice reform. So I don't think anyone who is familiar with that bill would say she was uh, adopting a conservative measure there. So I would say that she is a moderate to left-leaning candidate in this field. And I think there's also going to be the fact that when people make assumptions about uh, political candidates, uh, they often factor in gender in terms of figuring out a person's political ideology. And this is 
usually you know, not necessarily a, a fair assessment, but people see a female candidate and assume that they are more liberal than they actually are. It's the same thing with candidates uh, of color. So there are two candidates of color in this race right now. You have Letitia James, the Attorney General, and Jumani Williams. And because they are uh, people of color, there's a perception that they might also be more liberal than they really are. I think you know, in the case of Jumani Williams, it's hard to overassume how liberal he is. But you know, I think Letitia James has a more of a moderate streak than she actually gets credit for. So I wonder how much of her race factors into that. So in terms of Hochul, though, I think she presents as a moderate, but if you dig deep into her positions and if you follow along what she's likely going to be doing the next few months as she adopts a budget and deals with the legislative session, I think you're going to see someone who's more liberal than people might have given her credit for as lieutenant governor, but I also don't think she's going to be nearly as liberal as the progressive far left of the wing of the Democratic Party would like to see her. I don't see her championing things like a state takeover of uh, health insurance, which would be accomplished by the New York Health Act. I don't see her leading the way on progressive criminal justice uh, changes session. So that's kind of where she falls uh, on the political spectrum. Let's talk for a moment about Buffalo, because I think Buffalo is quite interesting because the socialists won the primary, but yet the incumbent won with the right in vote. Mm-hmm. What's your what's your view uh, on what happened in Buffalo? Well, let's start with the primary from June. I think what we okay. saw there was that in a election with low turnout, mm-hmm. a candidate who generates excitement and a candidate who's able to turn out their base and win a low turnout election. And we've seen that now for three years' worth of elections, dating back to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez beating Joe Crowley in in a low primary turnout in in Queens and Brooklyn. And what we saw then in the primary was an incumbent who kind of took the race for granted. He's been serving as mayor for four terms now. I I don't think he took uh, his challenge from India Walton very seriously. And as a result, I don't think he did the necessary work to get his base out in in the primary, whereas her campaign did a great job of tapping into the energy that was uh, driving her campaign. Then fast-forwarding to the general election, you now have a much bigger electorate to choose from here, and there might be an enthusiasm gap amongst the India Walton voters. You know, they were very excited to vote for her, but there's also just more traditional Democrats who are used to, say, voting in a general election and maybe not a primary, and while ordinarily they might be just ready to pull the trigger on whoever is on the Democratic line, I think that Byron Brown did an excellent job of reminding voters, A, that he's on the ballot, and B, giving them a way to vote for him, say, handing out uh, stamps with his name on it so people didn't have to worry about spelling uh, Byron and spelling and writing Brian by accident. So I think that he also did a good job of messaging. I think that despite what India Walton might say about the popularity of her positions, 
I don't think she's a candidate in step with the mainstream of voters at large and even not within the Democratic Party uh, in Buffalo in particular, because in the Buffalo general election, it is still a majority, a vast majority of voters who are registered Democrats. So I think that it was really those two things. Byron Brown played up his name recognition and played up the fact that uh, he was more in line with the ideology of Buffalo Democrats. And then there also is the fact that he was able to appeal to more conservative and even Republican voters in Buffalo. Granted, they make a small portion of the electorate in the city, but they are still a group of voters who had no other option, really, between Byron Brown and India Walton. So I think that's kind of the picture that he put together. Some people are reviewing this as a whole rebuke of uh, socialism within the Democratic Party, uh, saying that uh, this is emblematic of the failing of the Democratic Party in 2021 by not backing enough mainstream candidates. I don't think I read all of that into this. I think this is a very unique circumstance. It, it's unique, and let, let me pose this question to you. Um, since Walton lost and by, uh, Brown won, do you think that the big donors and other people who are influential in campaigns were really freaked out over the fact that a socialist won the primary and they did everything in their power to ensure that the incumbent entrenched Democrat would win. So I didn't cover the race to the extent that I could tell you uh, what people in and around the Buffalo political establishment were thinking with regards to the primary results and there's then mobilization in the general election. But I do think the primary in particular served as a reminder to establishment Democratic candidates about what can happen if they take their opponents for granted, which is something yeah. we're going to see potentially play out in the 2022 state legislative primaries. We already have candidates from the Democratic Socialists of America Party in New York City who are mounting primaries against some incumbent lawmakers like State Senator Kevin Parker, State Senator uh, Brian Kavanaugh. So I think those candidates are people who are obviously very aware of what happened in Buffalo and, you know, if they're smart, won't uh, let themselves get caught flat-footed. Do you think that Buffalo is going to be a uh, bellwether for... 2022? Uh, not really. Are you talking about like being an indicator this past 2021 being right. an indicator for how 2022 yes. will play out? Um, yep. it, it, I, I think that there's things we can learn from that election, but I also think the fact that it happened is something that no one can shake now. I think it's something that everyone needs to be cognizant of, and I, I think that uh, it's hard to imagine someone 
being uh, caught as unaware as Byron Brown was moving forward. Well, I guess he was as caught as unaware as Joe Crowley was when AOC won her primary. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and I would say that the Byron Brown example is even more egregious because, you know, this was uh, someone who just controls all the levers of power in Buffalo, and I just, uh, there's no excuse for why he lost that primary from a, a political perspective. The reason why that interests me is there was a, uh, when there was a primary for mayor in, in Albany, the incumbent won, but the the lady that came in second uh, kept running, and she ran as a uh, write-in, and everybody kept telling her, a write-in can't win, a write-in can't win, but in Buffalo, a write-in won, and I find that well, very interesting. I mean, a write-in who had served as mayor for four terms previously was a uh, member of uh, the state Democratic Party uh, and had a lot of a lot of money to spend. It's it's really different to run a write-in campaign as somebody you've never heard of. I mean, I can't even recall the name of the candidate that uh, Mayor Sheehan defeated in in the Albany primary for uh, the Democratic nomination. Valerie Faust. Well, there you go. See, you're ahead of me. Yeah. <laughs> um, Let's talk a little bit about the um, race for AG. Are you surprised that Andrew Cuomo's name is mentioned for um, AG? I mean, no, he not. served in that, in, in that position before. Why would he want to go back? The thing that gets me is, he, you know, he's got he's got some money from the you know, $18 million or whatever it is. But, but I think that's secondary to the fact that he knows a lot of people throughout the, the state, a lot of people throughout the country. Why would he want to get into elected politics again? I think there's so much he can do. Why would he set up to possibly fail again? What's your opinion? Okay, well, we'll take... Uh, the first thing first about uh, why would he want the job. I think uh, right. he would like the job for a couple reasons. One, because if he had it, he could be a real pain in the butt to whoever is the next governor of New York. Uh, two, I think he likes the idea of having uh, a fiefdom in, in Albany again. Uh, three, I think he doesn't know how to do anything besides serve in public office and operate the levers of government. That being said, I don't think he'll actually run for AG. I also think that what we've heard about a potential AG run are a lot of secondhand reports, and we haven't actually heard from him or his attorney or his campaign apparatus that this is something he wants to do and, and is laying the groundwork for, because this race is rapidly approaching. The June primary is you know, at, at this point, just a little over six months away. So you really need to be getting serious about something like that. And when we talk about that campaign war chest, you know, it was $18 million uh, in 
July as of the last campaign finance filing, but he's been spending money on personal attorneys. Uh, He's got staff now that he has on with him. So I think that number is going to start to decline, and I think that we can't overestimate how unpopular he's become within the Democratic Party. And we've seen this type of comeback before, particularly in New York City, where we saw Elliot Spitzer decided to try to run for city office. He lost in a primary. We saw Anthony Weiner try to run for city office after getting disgraced and losing his job, and he did not fare very well. So I think these comebacks are exciting for people like us in the media to talk about or think about and and imagine, but I don't think this is a a realistic uh, scenario that we need to worry about happening uh, in Albany. Yeah, time will tell. Uh, the the uh, months leading up to the uh, primary is, you know, a while. And, and people say uh, a day in politics is like, like a lifetime. But if, I'm just saying if, there was a primary with Cuomo, a state senator Biagi and Zephyr Teachout. Don't you think that could get kind of ugly? What's your opinion? Yeah, I think it would be ugly, but I also think there might be a question of how much would the candidates engage with Cuomo. I think if I'm running for attorney general and there's this looming bear in the corner of the room, I don't know how much I want to poke the bear with a a stick or whether I even need to, I think you don't really engage. Um, As far as Senator Biagi running for AG, she does have a kind of generic campaign website, which I think is alessandrabiagi.com, excuse me, doesn't really specify, you know, what she's hoping to do in the future. And when we've talked with her about her future plans, we've, you know, asked about whether she wants to be a lieutenant governor candidate, um, something that's you know not possible with Hochul at this point, but maybe she could be on a Jumani Williams ticket or a Letitia James ticket. Um, as for the AG position, though, I don't necessarily see her getting in that race, especially when, as you mentioned, Zephyr Teachout is already someone who's running at full speed for this, and I think they kind of occupy the same space within the Democratic Party. Uh, they're both from this uh, anti-establishment wing, this very progressive wing. They've always had each other's backs ever since 2018 when you know, uh, Zephyr Teachout ran unsuccessfully for attorney general and Biagi ran uh, successfully uh, in, a, in a primary against uh, Jeff Klein. So I don't necessarily see Biagi getting into this race. I mean, we, there are other names to talk about in the AG's race as well, though, like uh, State Senator Shelley Mayer, a Westchester County Democrat who is in there, at least for now. I don't know how long that, that bid will last, but we'll see her uh, name on the way through June, uh, as well as Maria Volo, the head, former head of the Division of Financial Services. She's in the race for now. Assemblyman Clyde Vanell, a Democrat from Queens, has thrown his hat in the ring. Maybe this is just about getting some promotion, but you know, maybe he's serious about it. And then the other name is the um, district attorney in, in New York uh, from 
the uh, I believe the Bronx, uh, last name Gonzalez. Um, he's someone who's also been thinking about getting in this race, hinted about it, and you know would be a formidable candidate if he got in. You, you and, know and, and, I refer, refer, and actually, I was wrong. He's he's the Brooklyn uh, DA, Eric Gonzalez. You know the players quite uh, pretty well, I would assume. And I've been watching State Senator Gustavo Rivera from the time he was first elected. Mm-hmm. Do you think he has higher aspirations, or do you think he's comfortable in the State Senate? So I don't really know the Bronx political landscape that well to tell you whether there is a uh, congressional seat that he could occupy. Um, I, I imagine he's in Richie Torres's uh, district, but maybe maybe not. Um, I think that he's someone who likes where he's at in terms of the Senate Health Committee that he chairs and is likely to chair for a while, assuming the Democrats hold on to their majority. But I could also see him potentially landing you know, a cushy administrative job at some point with like a nonprofit. He's been in the Senate now for, uh, I think, 11 years. He was first elected in 2010. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might have higher aspirations, but I don't necessarily see the pathway that he would follow. So that's kind of how I'd have to leave that. Let me ask you a question about the uh, overall political scene. If Biagi had not beaten Jeff Klein, do you think things would be different right now? Yeah, I think things would be different right now. I don't know how different they would be. I think it would have been some awkwardness in the Senate uh, Democratic Caucus in in 2019 because there were so many of his former uh, colleagues in the Independent Democratic Conference who did lose their primaries. I think that we'd also have maybe more questions and maybe some more answers about the allegations of sexual misconduct uh, by Klein. But I, I think that there was kind of a wave going in this chamber, and you know maybe uh, Andrew Cuomo would have given him a job in the administration or some some way to help him get out of what would have been a pretty awkward uh, uh, position to be in. Because we also saw David Carlucci, a uh, member of the Independent Democratic Conference, who survived right. the 28 primary, and then in 2020, you know, sought, sought higher office. So was that a a result of him not wanting to stick around in the state Senate anymore? Was it simply because mm-hmm. he thought that open congressional seat was a good fit for him? So I, I don't really know what would have been the dynamic in Albany had uh, Biagi lost that uh, primary. I'm going to uh, talk about the media for a few minutes. Um, this past weekend, uh, Chris Cuomo was fired from his job on CNN do you think that whole thing was overblown? I don't necessarily think so in light of what we learned about the role he took as an advisor. I think it's one thing to be a passive advisor to a family member. Say if Andrew Cuomo had said to Chris, hey, I, I'm not really sure what I should be doing, and Chris Cuomo said, you know, trust your heart, Andrew. We all love you, and you know we'll support you no matter what. That's one thing. 
it's another thing to do the level of engagement that Chris Cuomo did. He, based on these correspondence that we have now had access to as a result of the AG's investigation, really took a proactive role in this uh, response to the governor's uh, misconduct allegations. He really inserted himself into this process to at the very at the very minutia level, and he also went out of his way to use his journalistic ties to try to advance Governor Cuomo's position, whether it was finding out information uh, about investigations or to learn more about the allegations facing the governor and, and to even kind of do some sort of, I, I guess I would say, targeted opposition. So I don't think it's overblown, the response. Um, it's you know It's all really unfortunate, especially considering how Chris Cuomo had been viewed as sort of just taking a more hands-off approach, and that was not, in fact, true. You know, he, he misled the public when he initially described his advisory role uh, about his brother's campaign. And, and then all of that is separate and apart from now we have two women who are accusing Chris Cuomo of sexual misconduct uh, as mm-hmm. well, which makes the picture even more complicated. Hmm. Well, we just have a few minutes left, but i got to ask you, this is our last conversation in 2021. We're going to go into 2022. Uh, there's going to be the state of the state. There's going to be all kinds of talk about the budget. What do you see as far as the state of the state? What will be addressed? I think that in light of the surge we're seeing now with COVID-19 and will likely continue to see through the holidays and into the new year, I think the pandemic is really going to be front and center for the state of the state. But I also think... Mm -hmm that Governor Hochul will try to sort of build off the momentum of the federal infrastructure bill and offer her own sort of build back better, to steal the common phrase that's used, lingo for her agenda. I think this is going to be her real chance, her first chance, and first chance at such a large scale, to identify you know, her vision for state government, her philosophy of state government, her priorities, so I think she's going to take some big swings, whether it's announcing infrastructure policies, whether it's announcing funding goals for certain things like education or, or health care. Uh, and then we also have to remember that she has a lot of money to spend here, in part because of the infrastructure uh, deal, but because, because of all the stimulus money that New York has gotten. So I think she's going to be able to avoid certain hard choices on things like raising taxes and, and won't have to deal, worry about, uh, you know, cutting any budgets. So I I think we're going to see a lot of spending and a lot of big picture uh, ideas and a lot of COVID. So we we will not talk again until 2022. Um, No, no, it's not a threat. Okay. (laughs) We could could talk all the time if you'd like, but give a little uh, overview of your, your, um, show um, on public radio. Well, we're really excited that this week on the Capitol Press Room, which you can 
uh, getatcapitalpressroom.org. You can download wherever you get podcasts, or you can uh, listen at your local public radio stations for the most part. You can find that schedule at capitalpressroom.org. We're going to be talking with uh, Tom Swazi, that Democratic uh, congressman who just recently got into the, the race for, for governor. We're also going to be hearing from some of the AG candidates in the coming days, including Shelley Mayer and Maria Volo, and we already talked with uh, Clyde Vanell. So we're really trying to keep track of all these moving electoral parts while also previewing uh, the upcoming 2022 legislative session. It's uh, a lot to cover, and we're really excited about it. Terrific. So I'll be listening to that. And then in January, for the new year, on the eve of the State of the State, we'll be talking again. So you've been listening to Dave Lombardo of the Capitol Press Room. I'm Cynthia Pooler. This is focused on Albany. If you like this show, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Dave, happy holidays, and I look forward to a new year with lively conversation. Sounds Thank great. you, everybody, for listening. <laughs>